It's the new year, and as day follows night, time to review the trends that will have a big impact on the global food industry through to 2020 and beyond. We've got a round dozen to get through, trends that is, so let's get cracking. And I'm going to do them in three bites. In this podcast, I'll start with four of the 12 that can be very loosely corralled under the label socioeconomic and demographic trends. First up is shifting of economic power globally. Yes, this is about the continued emergence of new economic powers. More than just the BRICS, but clearly China and India are particularly influential. In 2000, at Purchasing Power Parity, PPP as they call it, China accounted for 7% of world GDP. By 2020, it's forecasted to be threefold this number at 21% of world GDP. India's a step behind, and next year in 2012, for example, should account at PPP for 6% of world GDP. Outside the BRICS, watch Turkey, Mexico and Vietnam. So, so what? Why should we be bothered? Well, these fast-growing emerging countries are changing the structure of our food and drink industry around us. A new generation of globally competitive companies are increasingly influential. For example, from Brazil, the meat company JBS reached number one in meat globally through domestic growth and international acquisition of the likes of Swift's, beef, lamb and pork, and Pilgrim's Pride, chicken, its major competitor, well, it's another Brazilian firm, Marfrig from Brazil, who bought McDonald's major supplier of meat, OSI, in Europe, and completed 40 acquisitions between 2007 and 2010. The iconic English tea brand Tetley's is owned by the Tata Group from India, who, by the by, also own Jaguar and Land Rover. John West, canned tuna and salmon, now in the hands of Thai Union frozen products from Thailand. The big FMCG guys haven't been sleeping on the job either. Years ago, they decamped in emerging markets. In 2004, it's only seven years ago, one-third of Unilever's global sales came from emerging markets. By last year, 2010, this had grown to over half total sales. Take a look what's leading Tesco's sale growth. Yes, it's emerging markets in Asia and in Eastern Europe. Do we expect more of the same through to the end of this decade? Very probably, although the shift in economic power is gradual and not necessarily in a straight line. There will be greater volatility in the growth rates of the emerging countries, greater business risks relative to the slow-poke old economic world, and don't be surprised by occasional shocks, which at the extreme end could be cataclysmic. George Friedem, in his controversial book, The Next Hundred Years, A Forecast for the 21st Century, posits that China will increasingly be distracted by internal dissension, and much energy will be expended in keeping this disparate country in one piece. Be that as it may, I do know that the challenge of managing the flow of citizens from rural areas to the cities without a lot of tears will be substantial for China. This leads us to trend two, which is urbanisation. Half the world's population live in cities. By 2050, the figure will be 70%. Over the next five years to 2015, the number of cities with more than 8 million population will double. By 2020, there will be 14 cities with over 20 million people. I've visited them all, actually. Mumbai, Kolkata, Delhi, Dhaka, in Bangladesh, that is, Shanghai, Jakarta, Manila, Seoul, Tokyo, Cairo, Lagos, New York, Sao Paulo, Mexico City, and for good measure, there won't be a blade of grass between Hong Kong, Shenzhen, and Guangzhou. In essence, another meta-city, as these huge conurbations are called. So what? 
Well, actually, meta-cities attract international retailers like bees to honey, and there are substantial supply chain implications associated with this. Starting in developed countries, there will be a shift to smaller footprint urban stores, with likely rationalisation of SKUs, products that is. There will be no room for four brands of ketchup, and unproductive inventory will be anathema. New distribution infrastructure will be required with intermode transfer points placed strategically. In Europe, one can see the emergence of road-rail-water transfer points linking sea, road, rail freight and river much more effectively than in the past. International food service companies will flourish in metacities and, along with the global retailers, will accelerate the transformation of farm-to-fork food chains in emerging countries. I fancy urbanisation will encourage the internationalisation of the diet, to a degree anyway. This is good news for Italian food. Why? Well, around the world, consumers select Italian food as the most liked after their own food. So, worry not, wherever you go, there'll be plenty of pasta and pizza. Mind you, maybe not a pizza topping that you are familiar with. It was ever thus. Pizza entered this world in Italy as a working-class fast food, and wherever you go, it's the same. So look out for sea cucumber on your pizza in southeast China. Trend three is increasing spread of wealth and wealth disparity. Folk leave the country for the city largely for economic reasons. They follow the money. The big opportunity for the food and drink industry through the decade is the expansion of the global middle class. Purchasing power parity income is expected to triple in emerging countries by 2030. In 2000, just over half of the world's middle class were in emerging countries. By 2030, this number will be over 90%. A terrific target for the major manufacturers and retailers who will fight tooth and nail for the attention of shoppers. It's about brand development and who will win manufacturers' brands or retail brands. In North America and Europe, retailers were largely late to the party with retail-owned brands, and when they came, retail brands flagged cheap, lower quality than major branded goods. Look at the increasing sophistication of retail branding in countries such as the UK, though, with a tiered good, better, best offer. In emerging markets, retailers have the opportunity to jump from own label is low price, low quality to a much more competitive position vis-a-vis the manufacturer brands. I'd say go early to a good, better, best own label offer. For retailers, that is. Particularly in high-growth economies where shoppers are intrinsically brand conscious. It's not too late yet, but hurry. Instant coffee and chocolate are new for most Chinese. What are the preferred brands? Well, you guessed it. It's Nescafe and Dove, which is from Mars. You've got to be quick and very good to keep abreast of the international FMCG guys, but retailers do have an opportunity. The increasing spread of wealth will drive demand in particular for premium proteins, oils, alcoholic drinks. So that's good news for meat, dairy products, olive oil and wine, for example. But be careful. Take a good look at food traditions and culture in your target emerging market. When the Wong family of Nanjing see their household income pop over US $5,000 for the year, they won't wake up the next morning and think, Funny, I fancy a ribeye steak. They'll look first for more and better quality of what they eat now. That is fish, chicken and pork. Beef and lamb is as exotic to them as ostrich and venison is to you. The fourth of the socioeconomic and demographic trends is ageing population. There's an extraordinary difference between the population age profile in developed countries versus emerging countries. The former looks like a pillar, roughly similar numbers in each age range. 
and the latter, emerging countries, looks like a pyramid with a huge base of young people and a pointy peak or apex with very few oldies. Mind you, China is a little different as, reflecting its one-child policy, it tends towards the developed pyramidal model. Focusing on oldies in developed countries for the moment, there's good news and bad news. The good news is that there's lots of them, and they're relatively well off. Baby boomers are as much as 50% of the population in some countries, and they've got 70% plus of the wealth. Yet oldies are not well served by our industry. Opportunities are enormous, I believe. What are the specific requirements for oldies? Well, easy to open and read pack sizes, for one. Uh, not multi-buy family packs. They want it for one or two. They want it accessible on the retail shelf. Products with strong health and well-being hooks and nostalgic and memory jocks. Sensitive aids without being silly, such as trolleys with magnifying glasses, seats, uh, maybe a senior crash corner for wizened old, main, uh, old uh, males. Wider aisles would help too. What about shuttle services from protected accommodation to stores? Home delivery is good for oldies. Or stores in nursing homes. You can see it coming. Oh, it's endless, really. Don't underestimate the political clout of oldies, too. They can and do change the voting landscape. Remember, some sage said, if you're not a socialist at 20, you've no heart, and if you're still one at 40, you've no head. The oldies will place enormous political pressure on social programmes. For example, it could be on pensions or... Uh, you, know, you can just imagine. Of course, the really bad news about ageing nations is that it indicates a shrinking population. Japan is a case in point where its current size of 130 million inhabitants is estimated to shrink by 10 million over the next 20 years. That's bad news for almost everyone in business, funeral firms accepted. Can you imagine being in the baby products industry? Mind you, incontinence is a characteristic of the beginning and end of life's journey. Well, that's enough dark frivolity. That's got the first four big trends out of the way. Take a break. I'm, I'm going. <laughs> it's wine time, actually. And make an effort to get back to my second podcast looking at trends five to eight. Those trends have a green tinge to them, but don't let their colour put you off. Talk to you soon. Bye now.